0: Well, that's fantastic. Great to uh, celebrate that together tonight. It's good to be together tonight and it's good to celebrate baptism as David Brewer said there earlier. It's good to be with you and let me just remind you whether you're here with us tonight or you're watching uh, uh, online as part of our uh worship folder. Let me just remind you uh, a little bit about baptism. When we watch baptism, again, it is a public profession that someone is a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's also an identification with God's people. So anytime we witness the baptism of someone, that's, uh, yes, their identification with the Lord, but it's also responsibility on us, the family, the body of believers. So you guys know we kind of have a pattern that when someone's baptized here, we want to put it back on us to say now we have a responsibility to help that person grow, and we have a responsibility to come alongside and challenge and walk with this person in their ongoing discipleship. So church, why don't you just pray with me Uh, right now as we begin, uh, we're going to open God's Word in just a minute, and we want to pray for Grayson and his continued discipleship and growth in Christ's likeness, and let's just continue in a word of prayer. Would you just pray with me? Father, we, we just want to say thank you, Lord, for what we've already sang together tonight, Lord, that no power of hell, no scheme of man, Lord, nothing that comes against us is greater than the great I am. And Lord, thank you that we could sing together that you are good. And Lord, it is a joy to sing together with your people that it is well with our soul. And God, thank you for this time. Thank you for this time to open your word together. Lord, we do pray for our brother. We pray for Grayson. And God, I pray that he, Lord, with this public identification and baptism with you and public testimony that he's a follower of Christ and identification with his body, Lord, that I pray for his discipleship and his growth in likeness, and his growth in maturity and his growth in fellowship and community. And uh, Lord, I pray you use him, pour out his life to make you known to the ends of the earth. Uh, For Jesus' sake, in Jesus' name, and all God's people said together, amen. Well, it's Saturday night. Uh, It's a beautiful day. It's Memorial Day weekend. So let's open the book of the Bible about suffering. What do you think? The book of Job. Go ahead, open your Bible, if you will, to the Old Testament book of Job. And we're going to find our place there again. And thank you for joining us online as part of the worship guide. And we're going to continue to walk through Bible 2020, and we come to this book called The Book of Job. Now, personally, I remember when I was in college, and the first time I ever really was introduced to the book of Job, and I was studying it on my own. I never really read it a lot. I'd heard about it, and I was sharing with this group of guys. I said, yeah, man, I'm kind of walking through the book of Job, and they said, well, you better be careful. You know what happens when you read the book of Job, don't you? And I said, well, no, I don't know what happens. And they said, well, get ready your life's about to fall apart. And I thought, well, I don't know if that's true or not. and I just always remember that, so I, I come to the book of Job with a little bit of fear and intrepidation. And I say that jokingly, but I say it in all seriousness, as I've read through this book this week and attempt to stand before you, it is one of those Bible books personally that I am greatly intimidated by. And I've been studying and pouring time in this book for weeks, and I I feel like i barely scratched the surface of what God wants us to see and know about Himself through the book of Job. So we're going to give it our best effort tonight and walk through some of these verses in the book of Job. Now, I want to kind of set it up this way, and here's the way I want to introduce the book tonight. I want to ask you a question. And the question is this, what would you say are the characteristics of a maturing, faithful, fruitful follower of Jesus? What would you say are the characteristics of that person? You'd probably say something like, well, that's somebody who's growing in Christlikeness. They're growing in the fruit of the spirit. They're becoming more like Jesus and you'd be right. You might say, uh, man, a faithful follower is someone, they they have these habits about their life. They pursue the Lord in the Word, and they pursue Christ through fellowship and community, and they have a right relationship with other believers, and they're pursuing that, and, and you would be right. You'd say maybe a characteristic of a faithful follower is many someone who just shares the gospel. mean, he just can't wait to tell somebody about Jesus and make disciples and pour their life out into the lives of other people and you would be right. But what about a characteristic of a faithful follower of Jesus that is this, that we faithfully endure hardship and suffering, See, I imagine when it comes to the idea of hardship and suffering and pain and loss, let's just be real honest, as the church in America and the West, that's not something we really like to talk about a whole lot. And when we even talk about a maturing disciple, the idea of someone who's growing in their understanding of of enduring through hardship faithfully and living in this fallen world and all that comes our way, but doing that to the glory of God, I don't know that we talk about that very much. Even though, watch this. Even though the New Testament explicitly is full of, of truth admonishing and calling followers of Jesus Christ to endure and suffer well. The Bible's full of that. Let me give you some examples. You know this passage, James writes at the beginning of his letter to believers, to these disciples, he says, Consider it all joy, brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. James says, you're going to encounter trials and difficulty in this world. Know that. The book of Peter, Peter writes, he says, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come up on you as though something strange were happening to you. Peter says to disciples in the early church, he says, why are you surprised that difficulty and loss and pain has entered your life? Shouldn't surprise us. Jesus said, in the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world, teaching his disciples there before the cross. The Apostle Paul says it this way in Acts 14.22, and I'll just say this one's been very helpful to me this week. Paul says to the the new disciples there in these churches in Asia Minor as he was going through, he says this, Acts 14.22, Paul was strengthening the souls of the disciples. How was he doing that? Encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying to these new disciples, as though this was basic discipleship for Paul. Discipleship 101 for Paul to these new disciples. Here it is. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. It's as though Paul is saying, the the word tribulation here, by the way, is a broad term. All of these terms, they're they're very broad to to speak of pain, the stresses, the pressures, loss, suffering, persecution, all of that that we might encounter in this life as followers of Jesus. Paul even goes so far as to say our capacity to continue in the faith, to endure, is linked, it's connected in how we learn to endure well, to suffer well. It even hit me this week, right out of this verse, Acts 14, 22, as one of your elders, it is one of my callings as an elder and to all our elders to equip the people of God to know how to suffer well. So we should be about that because the Bible is about that. Now, with well, all that said, the book of Job. <laughs> we all know when you come to the book of Job, you come to the book about a man who knows suffering. You could say about Job, Job knows suffering. Job knows loss and Job knows pain and Job knows suffering and distress and all this. Job even says, as sparks fly upwards, so man is born for difficulty, he says in the book of Job. What are we to learn from the book of Job? I really hope you've been reading through it this week and you've been studying through it. The book of Job causes us to wrestle with the realities of how can a sovereign God be just in a world filled with pain and suffering and loss, God, it seems good people suffer. How can it be just for good people to suffer? Job seems to ask, how can we as disciples walk through the inevitable pain, suffering, and loss in this fallen world? So, Job challenges us in all that. I think it's going to be a challenge to us tonight and helpful to us tonight as we walk through this book. All right, you ready to tackle Job? Here we go. First couple chapters of Job, we're going to meet him. We're going to hear his story. We're going to figure out who Job is. We'll do that quickly. And if you're reading along, you know chapters 3 through 37 is a lot of talking, a lot of dialogue, so much so that it's almost mind-numbing all the chatter that goes on in those verses until you get to chapter 38, and it's like, God, would you just speak? And finally, he does in chapter 38. And that's what we're going to kind of follow is that outline tonight. So let's ask the question first, uh, who was this man Job? Now quickly look with me, chapter 1, verse 1 of Job. Bible says this, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil doesn't tell us a lot about the history here. It doesn't tell us a lot about the setting. It's because it doesn't matter. The truths of Job, even though we think that the story of Job took place somewhere around the time of Abraham, something like that, the truths of Job are timeless. The historical place and setting is not, not even that important. These are timeless truths across all generations. It tells us, Job, very clearly, the Bible wants want you to know this man was a good man. He was a righteous man. He's called a righteous man here. God declares him to be a righteous, upright man. The Bible is very explicit. They want you to know that. The Bible wants you to know Job is a good man, upright, blameless. Verse 3, he was a wealthy man. He was a man of influence. God had prospered him. You would look at Job and go, man, God has blessed that guy verse 3, verse 4 and 5, he learned something about his family. He had a lot of children and he served his family well. It appears he led his family well. He appeared to be the priest of his home, if you will. He prayed over his children and he he offered sacrifice even on behalf of his children in a sense. And you just see this godly, righteous man of integrity, he leads his family well. He's greatly blessed by God. The Bible wants you to know something very clearly here that nothing Job is going to suffer is a direct result of sin in his life. Job is going to suffer all that he's going to suffer as a righteous, if you will, man. The Bible doesn't chase hidden sin in his life. The Bible doesn't hold that out. It holds out this good man who goes through extensive pain and suffering. Now, quickly, what happened to him? Most of you are somewhat familiar with this book. I don't want to go into great detail. Chapter 1, verse 15, on a single day in the life of Job. Man, you, you think you have some bad days. Uh, just to read Job. Job 1, 15, down through about verse 19, several things happened. Verse. 15 says, on this day, the Sabaeans fell upon his livestock, upon his donkeys, and they struck down his servants with the edge of the sword. So he loses his livestock. He he loses his workforce, if you will. Verse 16 says, the fire of God fell from heaven, burned up his sheep and his servants. Verse 17, Chaldeans came in these three groups. They made a raid on his camels. Camels are a big deal in this day. I mean, this is like his F-150 truck. I mean, it's a big deal. His camels are burned up, took down his servants with the edge of the sword. So he's a victim of robbery, of theft, of murder, and natural disaster, all within a period of one day. It's not over. Verse 18, while the same person was coming and giving in the bad report about everything else, it says, while this guy was still speaking, there came another and said, Job, your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind has come across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And it fell upon the young people and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Okay, let's just be real clear what happened here. Job's children are dead, all of them. Children are dead. So again, to, to, to feel what's going on in this story, in a single day, this man, this good man, has experienced incredible loss. He's lost his livestock. He's lost his income. He's lost his workforce. He's lost his children. It's not over, by the way. So then you kind of read that and you go, okay, why is all this happening? What's going on here in the the Bible? Just so great. It shifts now to the scene in heaven to give you a conversation in the court of heaven, by the way, that Job never knows about. Job never knows this conversation goes on that we're privy to and we're given insight to. So it shifts from the the earthly scene to all the destruction then to the heavenly scene as if to say you're not going to understand what's going on here merely from an earthly perspective. You must have a heavenly perspective to even begin to understand what's happening here. We're allowed to set in on a meeting that preceded all of this that happened in the life of Job. Job is never aware of the conversation we're about to read beginning in verse 6. It says this. Again, this is going on in the court of God, if you will. It says there was a day when the sons of God, that's the angelic beings evidently, came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came along with them. Best we can determine, this seems to be a time of accounting that God the king, so to speak, like subjects coming before their king are giving an accounting of themselves. Satan is there with them. Verse 7, the Lord says to Satan, <laughs> I like this, uh, from where you, where you come from, Satan, what have you been doing? What have you been up to? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and walking up and down on it. Stop right there. Gives us a little insight to our enemy, and it's this we have a real, very active enemy. First Peter says that we are to stay alert, watch out for our great enemy. He prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. So translation of what the enemy says here, he says, I'm I'm basically walking around looking for who I can devour. Believers in particular, I'm trying to separate them from their faith. I'm trying to diminish and weaken the faith of those who have even begun to profess faith in you, Jehovah. It's prowling around, verse 8. Now, God says something very interesting to Satan here. He says, and the Lord said to Satan, okay, you're, you're looking for someone to devour. Uh, might I recommend Job? <laughs> now, think about that. He says, okay, you're looking for someone to devour. I want to recommend somebody. And he's not a bad dude. I'm going to recommend the best guy I know, so to speak. I'm paraphrasing. Have you considered Job continues says he 's blameless, he 's upright. I mean this is god 's assessment of job. verse nine, then Satan answered the Lord and said to him, "All right, how about this here 's what I know about job here 's an accusation the enemy hurls. He says, "Does job fear you for no reason?" I mean, you've put a hedge around him. I see his house. I see everything he has. You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions. You've increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all he has. And here's Satan's accusation. He will curse you to your face. In other words, he's saying, well, he follows you because of all the goodies. In other words, you're not his true treasure. His faith is not that genuine. You strike him with pain and suffering and loss, it's going to separate him from this faith he says he possesses, and he's going to curse you to your face. This dialogue is going on in the heavenly court. God responds, verse 12, and says, And the Lord says to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand only against him do not stretch out your hand. In other words, all his possessions, all his stuff, take it. It's yours. Only don't touch his body physically yet. So what we see here is with God's permission, Satan is allowed to move into the life of Job, not physically yet, and in a single day, all the loss that we saw follows. He loses his livestock, loses his business, loses his income, loses his kids. Not a good day. And by the way, I can't say it enough. Job had no idea of all that conversation that went on in the heavenlies. So then how's Job respond? I mean, anybody who knows anything about Job probably knows a little bit of Job's response here. I want us to meditate on this a little bit. Look at verse 20 of chapter 1. Job's response to all this. It says, then Job arose, and he tore his robe, and he shaved his head, and he fell on the ground. What what does all that mean? That's classic distinctive marks of this day of deep and utter grief. It's not over-spiritualized when loss comes into our life. Job is grieving. Job has lost his children. He has lost his livelihood, he's grieving deeply, and he falls on the ground, he shaves his head, and the Bible says into verse 20, and he, what's this, what, what's the word? Worshipped. If you mark in your Bible, I encourage you to circle that word, Job worships. By the way, the worship that Job offers there is a direct refute to to the accusation of Satan. Oh, what's this. You take away his stuff, he'll curse you to your face. Job doesn't. Is Job the hero? No. God is the hero that genuine faith endures. Genuine faith endures through the crisis and through the calamity. And Job is able to declare here, no, you are my great treasure, not my stuff. God, help us to grow like that. He says, he fell on the ground and he worshiped, and then he declares something, verse 21. I want us to focus on this. Job continues, and he says, naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I'm going to return. He says, the Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all of this, verse 22, Job did not, char- did not sin or charge God with wrong. This is an amazing statement, brothers and sisters. If you're reading through your Bible and you're reading through the book of Job, I pray this is one of those passages you stop and you pray over and you meditate on. Here's our big truth It's going to kind of guide us through the book of Job. Then I'm going to give you a few big ideas that are going to flow out of this. Here's the big truth. It's this, straight from these verses. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. And if we could just be real honest with one another here, I think we like the first part of that, but we don't like the second half. I think we have a pretty good understanding that what we have is given by God to us as a blessing and a benefit in our life. But we wrestle with the reality that the sovereign God also has the right and the capacity as he cho- so chooses and wills in his goodness and sovereignty to take away. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away job grieves deeply he rightly worships in the midst of this and then he declares god you gave me my business and you chose to take it away and you gave me my livestock and you gave me all those blessings and you chose to take it away listen i'm a dad of five kids it's extremely hard to even fathom what job says here in a sense Lord, you gave me my kids. And you chose to take them away. And we, we, we struggle with that. We, we, we love the idea of God's sovereignty when we're talking about the Lord giving. But let's be honest, we struggle with the goodness and the sovereignty of God and the idea that he has absolute right to take away let's continue on what's what's here for us the Lord gives the Lord takes away well that's not all Job's not even finished I mean this day's over that there's another conversation in the court of heaven another conversation Job is never privy to chapter 2 verse 3 the Lord Satan comes back again he he, he throws another accusation at at God at Job God says in verse 3 about Job he says well he still holds fast his integrity Great theological point here. You can study this on your own. God says to Satan, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Suffering demonstrates the indestructible nature of genuine God-given faith. Job's faith endures. God says he holds on to his integrity. He continues because genuine God-given faith endures. He says he's endured. He's, he's passed the test, if you will. You said he would curse me to his face. That's not the way genuine faith works, God says. And Satan comes back verse 4. He says, all right, well, how about this? Skin for skin, meaning all that a man has, he'll give for his life. You stretch out your hand and you touch his bone and his flesh and he'll curse you to his face. Translation, you take away his health. You let his body start to deteriorate. You let all the, all the sickness and disease begin to infest his body. He'll curse you to, face, to your face, Lord. Verse 6, the Lord says to Satan, behold, he is in your hand. He's in your hand. But spare his life. Listen, that's a great place to stop and meditate on. And when you're reading through Scripture, God says, okay, I, I, I turn him over to you. But you can only go this far this far can't take his life take his health take his vitality take his strength but you can't take his life verse 7 so Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and he struck Job with loathsome sores this is just awful he struck, struck him with these loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head I mean, this is worse than poison ivy, all right? This is awful. His body's covered with these sores, and as you read through the verses, you see how painful and agonizing they are. They're not just these little... They they infect his whole body with this agonizing pain. Job loses his health. His vitality is taken from him. Verse 9 of chapter 2, we meet Job's wife, just a delightful lady. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> verse 9 his, his wife comes up on the scene she says to him Job do you still hold fast your integrity why don't you just curse God and die <laughs> she didn't even have any sores what's her problem just curse God and die Can you imagine but he said to her you speak as one of the foolish women would speak by the way, I think Job shows great restraint there. He doesn't say, you, you, you fool. He says, you're, you're talking foolish stuff. It's not who you are. It's almost as if you're talking, that, that's not even who you are. You're talking foolish stuff about God. And he says, shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? And in all of this, Job did not sin With his lips. Let's be real clear here. What we have, my best assessment of Job is this up to this point, we have a righteous man, a God fearing man is experiencing immense pain and suffering and loss. And a big truth that God is this is that the Lord. Job never backs away and credits anyone else for what is coming into his life. He never blames it. on. He he knows it's from the hand of God. He, He knows that everything he's experienced has passed through the hand of God's sovereign good hand. He knows that. So here's three big ideas. We're going to spread these out over the next few minutes and then we're going to wrap it up. With this, how do we then suffer well? What can we learn from Job in this book? In the, I'm going to jump ahead to chapter 42 in just a minute, but how can we suffer well? Big idea number one is this. We rest in God's sovereignty over suffering and hardship, pain, loss, persecution. We can rest in God's sovereignty. Job never backs off the reality that nothing touches his life apart from God's good and wise decision. Now watch, he's going to struggle with God's decision. And he's going to question the wisdom in which God inflicts a righteous guy. But he never questions where it came from. God, we rest in God's sovereignty over suffering and hardship. Now, say, Mike, are we going to walk through all these discussions in the next thirty-five chapters? Well, no, we're not. Here, I'm going to try to summarize these, and I, again, I hope you take time to read through these because it seems they're intended to get you to the place where I'm done with human talking about it. God, would you just speak? That's what happens. Let me summarize the next 35 chapters. Chapter three, up through verse, or chapter 38, is this: number one, Job's pain gets worse, not better. In fact, you read some of these verses, it says these these boils are oozing from head to toe. He has severe itching and rash. He says he's in agonizing discomfort. He cannot sleep. It says worms infest his rotting flesh. He has a raging fever. He has night terrors. His teeth have fallen out. And chapter 19, verse 17 says he has really, really, really bad breath. It's worse, not better. Secondly, his friends show up, and things get even worse. His friends show up, and if you read it, you know, they kind of sit around for about seven days, and they just gawk at him, and they don't know what to say because it's so bad. They would have been better off to continue to be silent, but they open their mouth with their best understanding of why the righteous are why people suffer. And they wax eloquent over why they think suffering happens. And by the way, whether it's COVID-19 or whether it's in the hospital, everyone throws out these conjectures of why they think suffering is happening. Well, you know why this pandemic's going on. God's just judging America because of our sin. Just this very simplistic way of understanding why suffering indeed happens in this fallen world. So they see Job's situation, and here's basically their assessment. Chapter 4, verse 8, his first friend says, As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. Here's what they're saying. And this is a lesson, by the way, when you see someone in distress, hardship, suffering, and loss, be quick to a rush of judgment that it's some kind of hidden sin in their life. They say, well, here's, here's our understanding, Job. This is kind of the way the world works, Job. It's this those who plow iniquity, those who sow trouble, they reap the same. Translation Good things happen to good people, bad things happen to bad people. They have this pseudo high view of God, and they, they say basically this God does not punish the just. So, Job, if you're going through all this punishment and you're going through all this pain, our understanding is this, God doesn't punish, God doesn't bring suffering, God doesn't bring pain, God doesn't bring loss into the lives of good, righteous people. I guess they've been watching Benny Hinn and TBN. I'm not sure. Their understanding is this. Good things happen to good people. Bad things happen to bad people. And here's what they're doing. They're offering an oversimplified, unhelpful assessment of Job's suffering. And those who came to comfort him do not comfort him at all. And Job just says, would you get out of here with your empty words? And that's kind of what goes on for several chapters between he and his friends. Then thirdly, Job continues to wrestle to suffer well. And you see Job wrestling and he despises, he says, the day he was born. Job charges God, he says, God is too far away. He says, God is too close. He says, all of this seems so futile and meaningless. He says, I know you're in charge of all this, God, but I simply don't understand. I'm innocent. there's no hidden sin. How can you bring this kind of suffering into the life of an innocent, just man? And Job just wrestles with that and wrestles with God. Second big idea, how we suffer well. I'm not going to spend time on talking about this because we don't have time, but it's this, Job laments. God never rebukes Job for his lament. Big idea number two is this. We engage in God-honoring worship and soul-shaping dialogue throughout our suffering and hardship. Man, Job wrestles with God. God never rebukes him for that. It's one of the ways we suffer well, and you see Job doing that. But Job's conclusion of his own argument about his situation is this. God, you have chosen to make an innocent man suffer. Why? God, where is the wisdom in that? God, you seem to be acting unjustly. Why would you allow me? And he contends for his own innocence. And the idea is you have made a mistake. God. I'm I'm innocent in this. Why would you do this? It seems so unjust and so unwise. And that goes on for about 35 chapters and then you're ready for God to speak. You come to chapter 38, and God speaks. Now I want you to look with me, chapter 38, verse 1. We're going to read a few of these verses and then wrap it up. Then the Lord answers Job. He answers Job from the whirlwind. Job wants to know why God never tells him why. He tells him something better. He says, who is this that questions my wisdom? with such ignorant words. Brace yourself, Job, like a man. Saddle up, big boy. We're going to go to class, if you will because I have some questions for you and you must answer them. He says, you wanna question me and my wisdom, fine. I got some questions for you. And if you can answer my questions, then I'm gonna answer yours. And he says this, question number one, and he goes through this list of questions, just a few of them is this, Job, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? You think you have understanding of why this is happening in your life and and you're ready to bring fault against me? Here's my question for you. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Where were you when I set the boundaries of the oceans? Job, do you order the morning and the sun to rise and the sun to set? Job, have you explored the depths of the ocean to understand them? Job, do you understand the source of light in the east? Job, can you direct the movement of the stars and the constellations? Job, can you make lightning appear and direct it to the spot it is to strike? Job, can you feed the millions of animals all over the earth and do it perfectly? Job, do you understand any of that. And he moves from the heavens and then he moves to what seems to be very common to Job. He says, Job, do you even understand the horse? the power and the nature of how a horse operates. Job, do you understand the hawk, how it soars? Job, do you understand the eagle, how it rises in its heights? Job, it's as if these things you see every day, Job, do you understand the wisdom of how even creation works together perfectly for my glory? Do you understand that, Job? If you know how all that works, Job, you speak. And then I'll answer your question. Well, Job responds, The Lord said to Job, he he continues on, verse 40, chapter 1, the Lord said to Job, will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Let him who reproves God answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, all right, I'm small. I'm insignificant. Who can reply to you? And watch this. He says, I'm just going to put my hand over my mouth. Enough talking for now. Job has nothing else to say. A few more illustrations of the infinite nature of God's wisdom and his judgment in the world and how he makes decisions. Job concludes chapter 42 verse 1, then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? In other words, the wisdom with which you rule the world is infinitely beyond my ability to grasp. Listen, God doesn't tell Job why he's suffering. does something better. He says, "Job, look at how I rule the world in perfect wisdom that you can't even begin to understand. If I even told you why your suffering is your suffering, you wouldn't understand it. But Job, rest that your God rules with perfect inscrutable wisdom." Verse 3, who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have declared that which I do not understand, things too wonderful for me which I do not know. Hear now and I will speak. I will ask you and instruct me. And Job says, verse 5, I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. He says, in suffering I have seen and I know you in a way I did not know you before. Verse 6, therefore, I retract, I repent in dust and ashes. Lord, I back off any accusation of fault. I back off that I have any understanding of wisdom. Lord, I back off, I retract, I repent of becoming your accuser and finding fault with you. Lord, you are all wise. Lord, you are all good. Lord, you are all sovereign. Final big idea, and we'll close with this, is this. How do we suffer well? We, we rest in the sovereign hand of God. We, we wrestle with God in the midst of it. And then verse, number three is this. We recognize God's unfathomable wisdom in suffering and hardship. Listen, it's as if God is saying... I'm going to ask the team just to come on up and begin to play. I I want us to move into a time of response and reflection in this. It's as if God is saying, I'm not going to tell you why. I want you to know something better. That the same incomprehensible wisdom with which I order the universe, the constellations, everything that is in existence with that same wisdom I govern your suffering and your hardship in ways you cannot even understand. We suffer well when we rest in his sovereign. We suffer well when we recognize his infinite wisdom in it. It's as if the book of Job illustrates to us that in our suffering, full understanding of God's reasons are not a prerequisite for faithfulness have to know all the reasons. I wouldn't even grasp them if he told me. But man, a resting in who God is and his infinite wisdom and the reality that the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, the reality that we can rest in God's sovereignty, we can engage in this lament, and we can recognize his unfathomable wisdom helps me helps you to suffer well to the glory of God final question and we're closed and then we'll sing out does God ever tell Job why he suffers no do we know why we suffer hardship suffering and loss many times no watch this and and I'm finished but we know this In God's economy, the just, the righteous suffer and the wicked often go free. And you know how we know that's a reality in God's economy? Because of a hill called Calvary. See if Job's friends were right, there is no gospel. There is an ultimate Job, a just man who suffers for the unjust. First Peter says, his name is Jesus and he has suffered the just one, the righteous one for the unjust and the wicked by faith go free. That's the ultimate point of the book of Job. There will be a just one who will suffer for the unjust, and his name is Jesus. We pray with me? Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for this truth. Lord, let us sing to your glory and sing of your greatness. And God, help us to suffer well. Lord, even when we don't know all the answers, even when we don't know all the wise, God, let us worship you for all of your wisdom, all of your greatness, all of your might. In Jesus' great name we pray. Amen.